Cinema Adventure. We are a movie podcast where every week we sit down and have a discussion about a film. This week we're doing a special episode because we're getting kind of close to the end of our show here. So we decided that we'd do some of our favorite movies, just our best picks. So this week's a Blake pick. Ooh, it's very exciting. It is. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to let you introduce it because it's your movie. I think it's kind of grown to become one of my favorite movies. I've always loved it, but I think it's just become more and more important to me over the years. So I went this week with 1946's uh, The Big Sleep, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. It's an adaptation of the Raymond Chandler detective novel of the same name. And I love it so much. <laughs> you know, it's always more fun to discuss movies that we love. I hope so. I almost feel like it's in a way harder because it's very hard to express exactly and, you know, pinpoint what makes you keep returning to it. Yeah. You have to capture that that essence of what makes it good, mm-hmm. you know. For sure. And it's, nobody wants to listen to a podcast of people just going, this movie is so good. <laughs> I'm just going to do that the entire it's time. It's good. <laughs> that's, po- that's poison. Yeah. No, it really is poison. So we'll try and dive into what actually is good about it instead of just saying, oh, it's so good. (laughs) I was terrified last night because I realized, oh, no, is Blake going to ask me to do a short plot summary of this movie tomorrow? (laughs) You really can't. It's Uh, That would be impossible. It's impossible. I think I would collapse. Uh, I think it would be the end of the podcast forever. (laughs) That would have been a huge bummer. Yeah, I know the movie is very famously confusing. And it's not even, like, anyone involved cared that much. Like, I think at the beginning they tried to make sense of it. I know the screenwriters, I believe, were Lee Brackett and William Faulkner. And when they were adapting the novel, they, like, called Chandler because they were really confused about certain plot points and who killed who. And at first he got really mad at them and said, like, it's in the book, you can figure it out. And then he called them back and was like, actually, I looked it up myself, I'm not sure. So, (laughs) confusing from the get-go. And then the director, Howard Hawks, eventually didn't really care about logic either. And the movie was still a really big box office success. And so he realized, like, as long as the movie's kind of fun, if it doesn't make any sense, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Oh, it's so interesting. This movie is quite enchanting. You'd really Mm -hmm. get pulled into it. And it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a long movie. I wouldn't exactly say it's a short movie. It's just about two hours, exactly. It's so well shot, and all the sets are so lavish Mm -hmm. that you just kind of fall into it and you stop worrying about what's happening. And I even felt this way the first time I saw it, and I had just read the book before mm-hmm. seeing the movie. So no, I still feel bad because I remember when we like first met last year. We were in one of our journalism classes together. I'd mentioned how much I love this movie, and then you like let me borrow your copy of The Big Sleep, and <laughs> I just like didn't have time to read it, and I felt really bad because I had to like give it back to you and be like, I couldn't read it in time. I don't think I have read it still. You should. You I should. feel like I'm nervous too because I have this movie so memorize that I feel like I'll just read it and then kind of get too stuck in the movie almost. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I don't know if that'll happen to you because the book is very, very, very similar to the movie. There's mm-hmm. only a, a couple of things that were changed in the movie, yeah. like the, the relationship that Philip Marlowe, uh, Humphrey Bogart's character, has with Lauren Bacall's character. What's her, what's her character's name? Uh, Vivian Rutledge. Vivian Rutledge. That relationship, I don't believe, happens until the very end of the book, oh, or okay. if it does happen... It's much more downplayed. They cut the movie off at a very odd place, I think. It just ends kind of abruptly. The book, he has an extra confrontation with the Carmen character where she Mm. tries to kill him at the end. Yeah. It it ties up a little better in the book, but... Yeah, no, I'd read they actually... There was, like, several endings that they considered. There was going to be one where 
Carmen was going to like try to commit suicide in front of everyone, but sh- like bolt the gun she was using had blanks in it or something. So that was going to be kind of a dramatic final ending. And I think there was going to be a different one where the Bogart character was going to like more detailedly explain the ins and outs of all the things that we witnessed, basically, and kind of which would be nice, honestly. But they kind of just went with that vague ending, which is I. What is it really exactly? I mean, it's really just a confrontation with this gangster. He gets shot, whatever. The police come, and then there's just a little kind of ambiguous exchange between Bogart and McCall, and that's kind of all you need. But Yeah, <laughs> and he spends most of the movie explaining in kind of a Sherlock Holmes way to other people the mm-hmm. things that he's figured out about the case so far. So yeah. if you are ever like kind of confused, you get little bits and pieces of what's happening from from his narration. Yeah, I wouldn't, Not narration, but his... Uh, exposition yeah i think there is a point in the movie though where you almost have to stop trying to keep up with the plot i feel like it's always really difficult i mean i've seen it like 15 times or something and i still don't really know like i'll read the plot summaries that are offered online and i still have a very hard time connecting the dots but i feel like that doesn't really matter here i think it's part of the point i think it works Mm -hmm. because philip marlowe as a detective his he's not a sherlock holmes who's in it for like oh the game is on yeah and he's not in it for the moral reward of solving a crime, putting the bad guys in the right spot. He's just in it, at least this is how I read it. I feel like he's just in it for the adrenaline rush. Yeah. He's just there for the chase. He gets so involved in, in these people's lives and he becomes so entrenched in the case that he doesn't care if he himself was breaking the law to find mm-hmm. out what's going on. He breaks into a couple people's cars in the movie, breaks and enters into homes a couple of times. He shoots a guy outright. You know, mm-hmm. he really, he's not trying to act like he's the law. Yeah. And I think the detective movies that stay with me the longest are not even necessarily the ones that have the most interesting plots. Because I feel like with a detective movie, as long as the journey is really interesting and all the exchanges between, you know, our protagonist and shady figures or, you know, female love interests, whatever. I think at the end of the day, that's a lot more interesting than uh, like a plot twist or some strange development in the story. That's always a bonus for sure. But I think... A movie just compiled of all these different relationships is always really intriguing. So oh, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about <laughs> your first experience watching this movie. This was the movie that kind of made me love movies. Around the time uh, I watched it, my family had gotten like DirecTV, and I was really obsessed with it because it had, you know, thousands of channels or whatever. And I was like, I wonder if there's any like good free movie channels at all. And I had seen that. Turner Classic Movies, that was a free movie channel, and that plays mostly, like, Hollywood Golden Age movies. And I also, at that time, I think I was 13, I didn't realize that there were even really movies made way back then. So that kind of just intrigued me right away, because there was almost, like, this whole different system that I didn't even really know about. And so I think I'd watched, like, some dumb, like, Ginger Rogers comedy or something, and I liked it. And then I kind of went and looked up, like, oh, what are the best movies from the 40s or whatever? And I remember this one came up, and it was on, like, Netflix and everything, so streamed it, loved it, and then it kind of just from there, just like constantly I've been watching movies ever since. Yeah, you snowballed. Yeah, I think this is the first review I wrote too, was for this movie, it's very bad. I don't know if, where to find it, but. <laughs> I, I, hey, you just watch it again. Did you watch it last night or like two nights ago, something like that? Um, I watched it last night, yeah. Last night. Yeah. You could, you could write another one. I could. I wrote one it's in fresh. 2015 that like. Is fine, but I don't really like it that much. So I guess I could maybe write another one. But I mean, I feel like with say? your favorite movie, if you're a writer, right, you could go back and rewrite a review every year and see how it, how <laughs> your uh, views of the movie change. No, as you it's age. so true. They always change. I just rewrote my review for like Body Double, and my opinion's totally different now. So but I feel like my opinion kind of remains the same with this movie. So who knows if my insights would be that much different? <laughs> yeah. 
I can't believe you've seen it 15 times. I love it. I think I watch it like once or twice every year just to kind of, you know, for fun, rejog my memory in a way. Yeah. This yeah. is a movie I, I felt this way when I was watching it last night. I was like, man, this is the kind of movie where if I was just hanging out with somebody and they said, I'm going to put on a movie right now and they offered this one, I don't think I'd ever say no. Like, it's just the, that kind of movie where it it's looks so, so nice, and it's it's funny, and it has a nice soundtrack. Like, everything about it, it just, it's uh, it's got vision. You know, it's got a mm-hmm. cohesive feeling to it. I was so impressed by this movie the first time I saw it because, like I said, I had just, just read the book. Like, I had just finished the book, and then mm-hmm. I watched the movie right after. Uh, Raymond Chandler in the book does a really good job of writing, well, Philip Marlowe as a character. All these characters are so interesting, and then... All of his locations are really vibrant, and he mm. explains just how everything looks so specifically. The adaptation that they've done for the look and feel of the film in relation to the book is insane. I couldn't believe it when I watched it the first time because all of the locations in the movie looked exactly how I pictured them oh, really? in my cool. head. There's a greenhouse at the very beginning that Philip Marlowe goes and visits mm-hmm. uh, to get his assignments for the case. <laughs> and the general's this old man who's who needs to be warm because he's old, I suppose. Yeah. So he stays in a greenhouse and he's wrapped up in blankets and it's very warm in there. But there's all these plants just completely surrounding him and mm-hmm. they make up the entire background. And their whole mansion looks how I pictured it. And especially the house where Philip Marlowe shows up to solve the crime at the beginning and there's the, the Buddha head that has the camera in it. Mm-hmm. And all of that, just the way that the set is dressed, the furniture, the lighting, everything is just picture perfect yeah. for what I had in my brain. Mm. And I feel like this movie, I think the reason why it never at least stops thrilling me is everything about it is very heightened and very stylized, but in a super exciting way. Like, I mean, it is a thriller, I guess, of its most foundational, but I mean, the dialogue and the performances and, you know, the set design and the music, they're all so electrifying that every time I return to it, I'm still kind of shocked by it in a way. Like, even from the beginning, you have three exchanges in a row, it's like Marlowe and Carmen Sternwood, who's the daughter of the general. And then you go to the general, and then you go to his other daughter, Vivian. And all three are so memorable. And the dialogue is very witty between them. And it, like you just he- just hearing it is exciting in itself. And so that just, the whole movie to me is that way. It's just nonstop, these really great scenes, very well-written scenes. And it's funny because, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it's so intelligent and assured in everything else that it doesn't matter yeah there's a concept that i hear echoed a lot from i guess movie people (laughs) which is oh good movies show they don't tell Mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot behind that right you know there is something to be said about good visual storytelling where you know a lot i've heard the sentiment which is oh if you turn off the dialogue you should still be able to tell exactly what's Mm -hmm. going on by the screen that's not the case with this movie but the writing is so interesting and unique that it doesn't matter yeah it doesn't matter a lot of that has to do with the delivery right Mm -hmm. if if it was you know boring bad actors delivering the snappy dialogue you'd be like what is going on (laughs) but humphrey bogart he's from another planet i love him so much he's so good in everything (laughs) he really is like even in really subpar movies still fantastic he's fantastic laura mccall this is only her third movie also fantastic i wish there was more of the martha vickers i mean martha vickers she plays carmen this is one of her first movies as well i think she's fantastic in it and i guess originally she had a way bigger part but i guess she was so good that they cut her part down and gave more scenes to mccall mccall's really great so i'm glad for that but at the same time like i would have loved to see 
or Vickers. It's interesting because it's the opposite in the book. Like you get a lot of Carmen in yeah. the book and you get very, very little Vivian yeah. in the book. Bacall is such a unique on-screen presence. Mm-hmm. She really is. Her film debut was in 1944, which is a half and half now, which is also with Bogart. That's where they met and fell in love and started having an affair. And so right after that, like that kind of made her a star. She's very seductive in that and just fantastic in general. And I guess the movie... She made this right afterward, and then she made this other movie that was like a spy film, and she played a British woman, and I guess she was really bad in it. And so they released that first because they knew she wasn't very good in it, and then released this and tried to give her a bigger part so that it would kind of maintain that star power she had built for herself with To Have and Have Not, which I would, I'd be interested to see if the reverse happened because I haven't seen Confidential Agent, which is, you know, the other movie, but... I heard it like could have been pretty detrimental. So, mm. but she's so good in this that whatever. Yeah, she is. Is that actually? There's a scene where she's singing at a party. Is, is that actually her? There's like some rumor that I think they said Andy Williams dubbed her over, but that's just like some weird Hollywood thing. I guess she she says that she did it. Howard Hawks says that she did it. So I'm just gonna trust that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I believe she has a very deep voice, so she sounds a little mannish. I guess that's just <laughs> that's just a little the call. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was almost certain that it was her because she has a pretty deep voice to begin mm-hmm. with and then when she was singing she was also singing quite low so yeah it does blow my mind watching her because she's only i think twenty twenty one in this and no yeah she was only 19 and to have and have not and so yeah 2021 i think Cause they filmed this in 1945 and she was born in 24 no i feel like every time i see her i guess it's kind of gotten more different since i've gotten older but i always am kind of shocked by that fact because she's so self-possessed and everything that she seems like she's in her 30s or something there are like certain moments i don't know if it's like lighting or maybe the way her face looks in some shots but then there are kind of flashes where you can tell that she's like 21 but for the most part you cannot at all oh i didn't catch i didn't catch any of those flashes i mean she she exudes such a maturity Mm -hmm. you know she just seems so so self-assured and uh confident i her character is almost i would say more interesting than than even a philip marlowe who Mm -hmm. is just this like i want to know what his story is right how did he get to be so electrifying but at the same (laughs) time like you kind of get this scummy feeling from him like yeah clearly you're trying to do something that's good but the way that you're doing it is making me think that you're doing it for you yeah that really makes me wonder i wonder if he's almost one of those detectives there's um I feel like a lot of movies, I get this feeling that they almost go into detective work because they feel like their regular lives are so boring or like predictable. They've just kind of chosen this line of work as a way to um, rid themselves of this emptiness because it is such an exciting, unpredictable living. So I feel like he maybe is like that. I haven't really read any. I think I read like The Lady in the Lake, but I haven't read a ton of like Philip Marlowe books. So I might have to look through those a little more maybe see if there's some backstory there <laughs> yeah i'll have to check out a couple more too if, if they're as good as the big sleep is then i i gotta get on there oh it is funny i always have kind of realized that they've really kind of cleaned up the plot because there are a lot of really the censors would not have allowed a lot of the major plot points in the book oh, and i don't know sure. if you felt this way but like kind of knowing what they were kind of makes the plot a little clearer if you like are aware of them like because like I guess one of the reasons why the Carmen character, she's being blackmailed or whatever, because she like posed for nude photos, which isn't mentioned in the movie, which kind of makes that confusing as well. There's that. And then she, did this happen in the movie? She like shot the Sean Regan character because of that. Was that kind of, that was kind of intimated in the they, movie, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think they intimate that in the movie. Yeah. I think so. 
There's that, and then the Geiger character who dies early on, he like ran the porn business, and he's the one who kind of was behind a lot of it. And they don't mention that in the movie. You know that he's involved in this kind of nefarious plot, but you never realize. So I feel like when you, if you go into the movie and kind of maybe read a little bit more into the plot as it was in the book, it kind of helps in a way. I was wondering, because this was code Hollywood. Yeah, right. Big time. So Big time. So <laughs> it makes sense that some of these plot points are taken out. Certainly the nude photo bits. Yeah. Uh, but then also there's a point when Philip Marlowe ends up back at the uh, Sternwood household uh-huh. with Carmen and the book. And the two of them actually end up sleeping together. Oh, really? And then there's a turn where uh, at the end where she tries to shoot him. She tries to kill him. Wow. Man. See, I think, I don't know, because I know there's like a 1945 version of this movie that has like a lot more scenes with Carmen and has like a different ending and I haven't seen it, but I do wonder if like that was kept in Wait, or not. Wait, ver- like a different version of the movie? Yeah, or there a are different... two different, the versions that are the most often distributed and the ones that are in DVDs and the ones that we watched, that's like the 1946 theatrical version, but there's like a 45 one that was never really released that has kind of what they had talked about earlier, like a little bit less Bacall, some more uh, Vickers, some reshot scenes as well. Apparently it's not as good though. Like Have people, you seen it? Oh, you haven't I've seen not. It. I think I've seen like cl- maybe clips of it. Like I know there are some things on YouTube where they like maybe reshot things and like put it side by side to see the differences between the versions. But I've heard it's a little more inferior because it is a little bit more expositional and tries to explain itself a little bit more and doesn't have as many like sizzling exchanges between Bogart and McCall. Yeah, I wonder how much like with those things if it goes into it a little more or not. But yeah, Code Hollywood is rough because they really had to work around a lot of things, mm-hmm. which sometimes I like, sometimes I don't like. Cause it can be frustrating when they can't just come out and say something. But well, uh, with that, I think it's time <laughs> that we jump into some fun facts. Uh, I'm gonna throw it over to our uh, head fun facts detective, Blake Peterson. Great, I have a lot. So buckle up. I hope they're entertaining. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, that was me buckling. <laughs> so because Bogart and were had, they were kind of at the height of their affair during this movie because they had started it after to have and have not. He was still married to this woman named Mayo Method, and they already had like a very <laughs> tumultuous marriage. They often like fought in public, and they she would like throw drinks at him and stuff, and it was really dramatic. But I guess the marital problems escalated so much that it really heightened. Bogart's issues with alcoholism and like there were a lot of days on set that were really tense because he wouldn't really be able to work but I guess three months after the movie was made then they were finally married so I guess that's kind of a nice resolution to the man I feel like you should probably figure that stuff out first then film I don't know but did they whatever. have a happy marriage after that they did have a happy marriage there was some volatility here and there but yeah they remained married until he died in 57 so wow love it 25 year age gap it's wild Oh, wow. Which is weird because I feel like any other time I'd feel like, yeah, that's so gross. But they just are like so good together that I've always just kind of gone for it anyway. The persona, there's like a scene in the movie where Marlo goes into a bookstore and kind of puts on this masquerade as this kind of fussy clerk who uh, is kind of a know-it-all or whatever. And so like Lauren Bacall tried to say that like Humphrey Bogart had come up with that idea to put on that guy's. And um, Hawk said that he came up with it, but actually Bogart had read The Big Sleep, and I guess it's in the book, so he just expanded on it, but kind of just didn't say that. So everyone just thought it was like some weird improv thing, and it was not at all. Good on him for reading the source material. I love it. That's good. Um, the scene where Bogart and Bacall, I don't know, <laughs> this really like stuck out to me. I wonder if it did for you too, where they're in that club, and like they're having this very weird 
innuendo ridden talk and they're like using horses as oh my like, gosh like yeah. that was so that was so much for me i was like listening to it i was kind of shocked they got away with it because it's so suggestive it is not subtle no i think people might have to watch that I don't, what would you type in on youtube if it were to exist like the big sleep horse dialogue i don't know uh <laughs> i don't know like the the big sleep uh <laughs> Uh, horse chatter. The horse chatter. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know what I would search to find that scene. God, it's like James Bond level, but it's just like so long-winded. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so funny. But I guess they had added that after, like after they kind of finished filming because they wanted more scenes that kind of mimicked how Bacall was into Have Enough Not because in that movie she's kind of a femme fatale and so they wanted her to have this kind of sexually confident stuff to show off. So that was added later on, which is interesting. According to Bacall, pr- production was fun most of the time, and that didn't settle well with Jack Warner, who owned Warner Brothers, because he thought that people weren't getting work done as a result. So I guess he sent a memo to production saying, word has reached me that you were having fun on the set. This must stop, <laughs> which really sounds great to work for him. Dorothy Malone, who she plays the, she kind of has like a cameo as the sexy librarian early in the movie. Uh-huh. And she would go on to become an Oscar winner. She's a really great actress, but she was only, I think, 19 at the time. And she had just started making movies when this came out. She was so nervous when she made the scene that they had to weigh the glass of liquor and make sure it like wasn't too heavy because she would shake so much that she would almost like drop it if it was too heavy, which is wild to think. Because in that, like Bacall is in this movie, she's very confident as well, so you would never realize. A cool cucumber. Which I should mention, like, Bacall was also very nervous. Like, even with To Have and Have Not, she was so nervous that she would have to, like, put her head down to, like, stop it from shaking, which is why she has, like, this look that she does where she kind of, her head's down and she looks up. And that's kind of, like, the Lauren Bacall look. It's, like, a trademark now, but that was actually just because she was nervous. In this movie, too, she was still very nervous because she was new to movies. And so a lot of this confidence we see is not necessarily there. But very good job conveying that. <laughs> Filming nerves, I'm sure, are still a very real thing for a lot oh, of I'd actors. Oh, I'd imagine, yeah. But the pressure then was so much worse because so much worse. you're doing it on film. Mm-hmm. Every time you do a take and you do it wrong, it's a lot of money. Film yeah. is not cheap. No, it would be terrible. So. I just can't imagine your first couple of movies being with you know, an actor as good as Humphrey Bogart, a director as good as Howard Hawks. Like, you're working with the best, and it's, you know, your first couple of movies. Like, there's no... Like, oh, I'll do these little things and kind of get used to it. Like, it's like you're starting from, like, the biggest point. Oh, yeah. So Absolutely. Kudos. Serious intimidation. Honestly. I've kind of talked about this, but, like, Bogart's indecision over whether or not he would leave his wife, like, caused uh, Bacall's hands to shake a lot. So, like, whenever they had to, like, light a cigarette or pour a drink, they'd have to reshoot it a couple times because she would be so shaky from that. And then, yeah, Howard Hawks later on, he actually removed a scene where Marlo explains the plot in more detail because he figured the audience would have more fun if they like simply just had a good time and didn't really know what was going on, which is interesting. I feel like a lot of directors wouldn't do that, but Hawks is an innovator, I guess. And I don't know if you notice this, but Sonia Darren, she plays Agnes, who's kind of a gun mall, mm-hmm. um, but she's unbilled completely in the credits, even though she has like a really big part. And I guess the reason why, she said in 2000, 2016, she told the New York Post that like Jack Warner had gotten into like, a really big argument with her agent, and so because of that, he just like cut off anyone who was hired by or like who worked with that agent so like that was kind of his retaliation he wanted to just cut her out completely but he couldn't so he just took her name out of the credits wow which is like it's always made me really mad because i feel like she's really good in this but she's not in the credits and so you don't really even know who she is which is that sucks jack warner sucks a lot yeah no kidding (laughs) 
The car Humphrey Bogart uses in this movie is the same that he used in High Sierra, which is a 1941 gangster movie, which I really highly recommend. That one's really good. Um, and the car is a 1938 Plymouth Deluxe. What a classic. All the cars are deluxe in this movie. And they're wow. beautiful. I want them. I love in his car, like the, he has like the hidden gun compartment or whatever. Yes. That's just like my, ugh, so cool. <laughs> That's very James Bond. It's so James Bond. James Bond copied. I would say. He's <laughs> a copycat. <laughs> He's a copycat. Bogart, when he read the script, he ejected to some of the lines that he thought were too, like, genteel for the character. And he assumed that they were written by the co-screenwriter Lee Brackett because she was a woman. And so he thought that, oh, it's just, like, some femininity. But it was actually William Faulkner who wrote those lines, and the tougher lines were written by Brackett. And so when he'd have her rewrite stuff he, that he wanted to be tougher, he would, like, call her butch because she really just was hardcore, I guess, in a lot of the dialogue. Which is, mm-hmm. I loved his, like, see, because I know... I had read that Faulkner and Brackett, they didn't like work super closely together while doing it. They would kind of just like alternately write certain things and just kind of compile it together. So I'd love to kind of see a breakdown of, you know, what dialogue was written by Faulkner, what was written by Brackett, because she's written some good stuff too. And I think she wrote a later on adaptation of a Philip Marlowe book. So Mm. that'd be interesting to know. Um, And then one, oh, never mind. I actually already said this. I was just going to mention again that Chandler did not know really any of the plot points himself when they asked him later so oh. <laughs> well, that's it that's all folks that's all folks <laughs> yeah, da, 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 i really da, tried thanks blake <laughs> you know you're welcome i really tried <laughs> you did it was a good try <laughs> i should mention too i this isn't even really a fun fact but this is there were a lot of uh chandler adaptations that did happen in the 1940s and i think for me i think probably the one that best captures his style and has like a followable storyline is 1944's Murder My Sweet, which is stars Zick Powell. I think he kind of actually fits more as Marlowe. He kind of is a little more not cheery, but he just doesn't seem as slimy in a way that Bogart does. But there was that, and then there's one called The Lady in the Lake, where like it's filmed completely from like the first person perspective, which is really weird but kind of interesting. And then there was a low budget movie called The Brasher Doubloon that also came out in 47. So there was like a lot of stuff going on. He was popping off. He was really popping off. But I do think this is probably the most extravagant and, I don't know, expensive version they made of his stuff. I think it's interesting that you think that there's another actor who's better at Philip Marlowe. Oh, Dick Powell's really good, which is surprising because I don't really like Dick Powell that much. I've always thought he's just kind of this boring, vanilla musical guy. But he actually fits really well as Marlowe. He delivers his lines so well in that. So. I recommend like, that one a lot. I like the the slimy kind of Bogart. The slimy is really nice. It's good. Yeah, you should see Murder My Sweet and kind of compare because that one's really I like that, that a lot. Murder My Sweet? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that's actually, I think it's an adaptation of Feral My Lovely, but they changed the name because Powell had been so associated with musicals that they were like worried that people were going to walk in, expect a musical, and then get a detective movie. Oh, so. uh, yeah. Probably a good move. Probably. <laughs> Do you have like a favorite scene in this movie at all? Do I have a favorite Would you say? scene? There's so many good ones. Yeah, that's hard. I really like just the first time when Philip Marlowe shows up to the house of Geiger's house, mm-hmm. uh, and they go inside, and he finds Carmen, and she's in a daze, sitting on the the couch. I think when he finds her in the book, she might be like somewhat naked. Yeah. Uh, and that whole scene is just so interesting because there's just a dead man on the floor, this incoherent girl. That scene actually reminds me a lot of Blue Velvet. Oh yeah. When there's the, like there's like the two bad guys and there's one of them. I think they both get shot, but like one of them doesn't die, but he's just standing there and he just looks like he's in a daze and oh, he's yeah, bleeding yeah. really bad and it's horrendous. Yeah. She's not in quite such a state, but mm-hmm. the the dressing of the room that 
the, those scenes both happen and is quite similar. Yeah. Um, yeah, that scene, because he just, he shifts from being, I wouldn't say a nice guy, but like being this kind of like, oh, jaunty, kind of silly detective to then mm-hmm. in that scene when he finds her in that state, he just like becomes this like hard, like edgy, mm-hmm. like kind of picks her up and he throws her on the couch and he's just like, like, tell me what's going on. What did you see here? And he's trying to, you know, pick apart the case, but he seems quite like nervous. He doesn't seem mm-hmm. as collected. It's like the one scene I feel like where he kind of almost breaks down in a way. Yeah. Because even after he gets kicked in the face, later in the movie and gets mm-hmm. like knocked out or i guess he's punched in the face but he gets knocked out and then he wakes up in a living room he doesn't seem phased by it at yeah. all yeah. yeah so i like that we get to see a little bit of a peek into you know marlo's n- more nervous state in that mm-hmm. scene it's always nice that balance i do feel like i mean with i think most of Bogart's performances you there's definitely a human there i feel like a lot of these actors will take on kind of this style of acting that feels very old-fashioned and it feels very much of its era, but Bogart just has never, he's always felt very modern to me and kind of above everything else. So I think he is a very interesting choice for casting here. Oh, yeah. For sure. I think funniest scene, though, is definitely the scene where he goes into the bookstore and he pretends to be the, the nerdy book collector. Oh, that's so good. He, he takes his hat and he, like, curls the bill <laughs> up in the front, so it's just funny and he puts on these funny glasses mm-hmm. and puts them at the end of his nose. <laughs> I love all the scenes with Bogart and Bacall just one-on-one. I like how a lot of them too usually end with him. It'll kind of be flirty for a while and then he'll say something and then she gets really mad. I don't know if, and I feel like in a lot of those, she'll also have a drink in her hand and she'll like slam it down. It just like happens all these times and her nostrils flare. But I just love how all those scenes are very, there's so much, the chemistry is fantastic, but there's also this tension and kind of this, there's something that's not being said that I really like. So all those are really great. And then I also like that one scene where he goes to, God, what is his name? Where Marla goes to meet, is it Joe Brody? Uh, Yes. His apartment. And then he like somehow discerns that Vivian and the Sonya Darren character are also there just from like, like he can, he can just tell her there, I guess has them come out somehow like gets a hold of like everyone's gun. And then, like Brody opens the door, gets shot, and then he like chases this guy. Like it's just the craziest scene. Like the whole way it unfolds, it's so smooth, but so much happens in a way that you kind of were just, I kind of just like taken aback by it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny too because they don't try to make Philip Marlowe a surrogate for the audience at all. Mm-hmm. They don't try to place you in the middle of this mystery and have you try to figure it out. He knows exactly what's going on, exactly. and you don't. But you are always with him. Yeah. So you you see all these crazy events go down, but you're like man, this guy knows what's going on, but I am lost. <laughs> they do a lot of drinking in this they movie. They do a lot of drinking. A lot of drinking. Philip Marlowe gets a lot of brandies and whiskeys, just mm-hmm. straight, not ice, just yeah. straight. And it's not like they just pour him a little bit, like a little flavor. Yeah. It's probably like two, <laughs> three shots worth. Yeah, good for him. Middle I of feel the day. If I were a private detective, I think I also would. You would really need to have somebody to take the edge off, I feel like, all the time, because he would always be so on edge. The 40s were wild because people were, or at least Philip Marlowe, was slamming them back and then driving. Oh, God. I know. I always forget about that because I feel like drinking in 40s movies, like, to me, it's almost not even the same as drinking now because it's almost like back then it's like drinking water in a lot of these movies. So I almost don't notice if they drink and drive. And then, like, later on I'll be like, wait a minute. (laughs) This is not good. Yeah. No, there's a lot of drinking and driving in this one. Yeah, not good. No, not good. Not good practices. I always wonder, like, what it would... Would it just smell like cigarettes everywhere you went in the 40s? I'm sure. It would just, it'd get old really fast. You'd probably just have to adjust. You'd probably, you probably wouldn't deal. even smell it. Like the wax oh. warmer in my room can't smell it anymore. 
because it's been there for so long. So maybe that's what cigarettes were back then. Wax warmer. <laughs> that's right, because we're not allowed to have candles. In Can't the... have candles. That's the next best thing. <laughs> <laughs> Wax warmers. Mm-hmm. Is that an invention that was designed specifically for dorm rooms? It. I feel like that could have been a huge factor. It has to be. Or people maybe, because I know some people don't love just having things burning in their house. So maybe that's they were true. just like, we don't want fires. I don't know. <laughs> Who can say? Who can say? Who knows? It's a mystery. People can look it up after this. I think that's about it, huh? Is that it? I, I guess think so. so. Blake, thank you for bringing this movie. You're welcome. Uh, this I'm is very a good happy. one. This is such a sleepy episode we've done. It feels very sleepy. It's because it's the big sleep. Oh, did you? Wow. That was so clever, Aiden. That's why. It's too much. I feel <laughs> like maybe using these other lights that we have in the studio today was a mistake. I, I think it could be, too. I think it could be. It feels like it's weird, like it's simultaneously... Like very early and very late at the same time. I There's agree. no time in here. It's just we opted <laughs> to turn space. on a little desk lamp and a floor lamp that we have in the room that have much softer light than our usual overheads, mm-hmm. and it's it's made us tired. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's like the they have like what are they called? Is it called like ambient bars or something? Where like they have very like dim lighting on purpose. I don't know if that's like an actual name, but that's what it feels like. Oh, you mean like bars? Where they have the lights <laughs> turned down. To general bar. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's like a term for it though. Like they're not, mm. there's like a something bar. Bar d'ambiance. <laughs> sure, let's say that. <laughs> I don't think I'll say that in public, but. Okay. <laughs> let's go That's to okay. the bar <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you want to hear more of us talking about movies or saying words uh, that sound vaguely French, you can <laughs> find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Android, uh, wherever you get podcasts, and our website, uwpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the Filmcast. You can find us on our personal accounts at Aiden Walkerout or at Blake W. Peterson. If you like the show, always share it with a friend. They need it. They're looking for some movie times. It's time. It's time. <laughs> if you want to write to us and just share your thoughts with the movie that we've talked about or uh, reach us about anything at all, we're available at cinemadventurepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow along with us, next Monday we're going to be talking about Akira Kurosawa's movie Dreams. Hell yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> Ooh, the self censorship. Is it Hayes so Code? Good. Is it Hayes Code Hollywood? It's Hayes Code. It's nineteen forty six in here. Wow. <laughs> Can oh, you tell? You had just like cigarettes I just remembered I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com. Did you know Peruvians have their own type of Chinese food? Or that Vietnamese food is heavily influenced by French cuisine? Have you ever wondered what other cultures' drunk food is like? Explore these topics and more right here on the Soundbite Network. My name is Dee Dee Madigan, and I'm the host of Home Plates, a podcast all about food. Catch up on the first season of Home Plates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. New episodes air every Wednesday.
Seattle Seahawks have the best offensive line in NFL history. Kyle Seeger is the better Seeger brother. Markel Fultz is the best player on the Sixers. Hashtag trust the process. Okay, we don't actually believe any of these things. But if you want to hear our thoughts on topics like these, tune into the Boxing Podcast with Chris Ankiko, Alec Dietz, and Andy Amashta every Friday on the Soundbite Network.